Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everyone, to the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Dr. Lisa Fortuna, Chief of the Psychiatry Department at the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to this important program focused on mental health and communities of color. Today's program is part of the Commonwealth Club series on mental health, dedicated in memory of Nancy Friend Pritzker with support from the John Pritzker Family Fund. This program is particularly relevant to the work we do in the UCSF Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and also highlights my own work, which has included being an investigator on several um, National Institutes of Health and Foundation-funded studies regarding Latino and immigrant mental health care and access. We appreciate your considering donating to the club And if you wish to do so, please click on the blue donate button at the top of the YouTube chat box or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. To our audience, we want you involved. If you'd like to submit questions, please submit them via the text chat area and I will get to as many as possible later in the program. And now I'm pleased to introduce our program. Experts widely report that mental health treatment in Black, Indigenous, people of color communities is severely lacking. Cultural differences and misunderstandings lead to diagnostic problems and hesitancy to seek treatment. The National Alliance on Mental Illness found that Black adults are more likely to report persistent symptoms of emotional distress than white adults. Yet only one in three Black Americans who need support gets it. Latinx, Asian, and Indigenous people similarly have poor access to quality mental health services. BIPOC youth are more likely to end up in the criminal justice system with their needs untreated. And the age of COVID has amplified the depth of these disparities and the ongoing systematic inequities for people of color. How can medical professionals, government, and the private sector work together in this challenging time to improve conditions and treatment, as well as eliminate stigma for those needing care. Today, we'll explore solutions to these challenges with our panelists who represent health, community, and human rights perspectives. Cheryl Davis is the Executive Director of San Francisco's Human Rights Commission. Prior to joining the commission, Director Davis was Executive Director of Collective Impact a community-based organization in the Western Edition neighborhood of San Francisco. She oversaw a collaborative effort of nonprofit organizations that address challenges facing low-income youth and families in the areas of economic development, community health, and violence prevention. Today, she will discuss the impact of societal racism and COVID on mental health and its treatment. Chuck Collins is President Emeritus of San Francisco's YMCA, which he headed for 16 years, working with some 2,000 employees and as many volunteers. Mr. Collins previously practiced law and served as Deputy Secretary of the Business, Transportation, and Housing Agency for the state of California. He also led the Family Service Agency of San Francisco. He will offer a community context for our discussion based on his work with varied populations over the years. Dr. Rana Hu is Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and Clinical Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. She is also the founder of the Stanford Mental Health for Asian Research and Treatment Clinic. 
Dr. Hughes served as medical director of the Acute Psychiatric Inpatient Unit at Stanford Hospital for 20 years. She cares for um, inpatients one-to-one, but also stresses the importance of engaging the community. And our final panelist is Nicole Elmore, a community youth activist who has been a program assistant in Opportunities for All, San Francisco Mayor London Breed's Youth Initiative for Workforce Development, patterned with the Human Rights Commission. We appreciate joining us to share her personal perspective that Nicole is doing so. So welcome everyone. Um, so we, we can get right into some of our, our core questions here. And um, I'd love if, if each one of us can open up in terms of um, what do each one of you consider among the most important set of issues related to mental health and mental health disparities that community, communities of color face today? Um, and maybe we can start with Cheryl. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club. I'm uh, excited to be here to have this conversation. I would say um, a couple of things come to mind when we talk about um, priorities or things to kind of focus on. And you hit on a lot of it, Dr. Fortuna, at the beginning. Um, there is uh, an article in um, the International Cultural Psychology Journal that talks about multicultural counseling. Right. And so for me, that is something that I've been thinking more and more about just in terms of what does that mean when we look at America becoming more diverse, right, that we're going to become a minority uh, majority at some point in time. And how are we making sure that folks feel seen and feel heard? And, and so when we think about um, whose whose story is being told but who's deciding the relevance of that story or how it's being defined, right? And so I think about um, Melissa Harris-Perry had um, the book where she talked about uh, the, the experiences of Katrina. There's a chapter in the book called Disaster. And in it, she talks about a woman who just wanted her humanity to be seen, right? The hurt and all that she was feeling that she wasn't being seen. And I think that that is, that is the challenge that we have right now. How do we understand, we talk about it a lot in the medical industry, but we haven't really delved as deeply in some of the mental conversations around when I say I'm hurting or I feel sad or the impact that we talk about um, racism, right? And how that affects people and that there's this need to define it in what is coined Eurocentric um, views, right? And that we're using something to define and understand something that doesn't fit that, right? So I, I think that the, the language, the narrative, the, the focus around uh, who are our counselors, what does it take to be a counselor that can work with multicultural groups, and the importance of, um, I would say also that we see with folks of color, the stigma that's still very much rooted in um, and whether or not somebody is quote unquote crazy or why would you go and get mental health support? I think that's another piece that we have to unpack and we have to normalize it across communities in terms of a human rights issue. For so long, it was really just about who could afford it, who could afford to normalize the, the idea of getting help and support. Um, and now we have to make it normal regardless of what your income level is, where you live or what you look like. I think that that is uh, a lot of the focus for me. Rana, what are, what are your thoughts? Thank you, Dr. Fortuna. Um, I think there's so many different factors, and I, I really like um, what Cheryl Davis just said. 
Um, and um, I, I, you could think about it as um, a people walking across a balance beam or a tightrope and there being a safety net underneath. There are problems in the safety net right now. There's problems in the width of the balance beam or the tightrope. And there's problem with like high winds on the on people who are trying to cross the tightrope. So um, these all of these factors, whether it's prevention, um, you know, we mentioned racism, we mentioned um, the extra stressors that communities of color are dealing with, um, and then access to care. So all of the things that go into the stresses that people are dealing with, and then the ability to get mental health care. And since this is one of the um, priorities of today's conversation, you know, realizing that mental health is health, that there is no health without mental health. How about Nicole? Let's go to you. Thank you, Dr. Fortuna. I think for uh, myself and my perspective, uh, just uplifting what Dr. Hugh just mentioned uh, with access to care. I think quality access to care is imperative for folks of color because we know there's this longstanding distrust around uh, practitioners and family navigators. And so I think really being intentional with uh, community involvement, parental involvement, and this whole hub of care when we're looking to bridge the gap for quality access of care. I also think uh, intentionality around uh, destigmatizing is monumental. I know we're in, in this whole era of folks kind of taking off their sunglasses and saying, you know, these things exist and these barriers are here, which is you know, awesome sauce, we're really happy about that, but we have to further it, right? And so take it from just conversations, but to real pipelines for folks of color to receive quality care and to trust their care providers and their practitioners. And I, I think that, you know, kind of stems from, you know, social factors and really just looking at how do we, you know, going back to what Director Davis said, but how do we normalize, you know, mental health? And how do we say, you know, to be healthy as a whole, you know, like that was our slogan, we did uh, to be healthy as a whole mental health plays a role, right? So folks to understand mm -hmm. that, you know, mental health isn't this scary uh, word or labeling. And so I think really moving from that is huge uh, to further, you know, to solutions for us. Chuck? Well, I'd like to begin by saying thank you. I'd like to say thank you to you, Dr. Fortuna, for leading this and for our fellow panelists today and the Commonwealth Club for opening up this important conversation. I'm a director of the Commonwealth Club, and you know the purpose of the club is really lying in opening up difficult and important conversations in its time. And there could be no more important conversation than what we're having today around mental wellness and mental health. Director Davis opened by talking about destigmatization. A diagnosis of mental illness is often crippling to a person and their record and their career. What happens when you have a diagnosis in your employment file that says that you have and fill in the blank? So one of the things that Dr. Davis from a human rights perspective is speaking about is destigmatization. With that destigmatization, we begin to open up a type of different conversation. 
because we might be talking, as Dr. Hu said, about mental wellness. Some people may call it spiritual wellness. They may call it well-being. But if we can begin to move past the diagnostic stigmatization of, of what we're talking about, we then begin to have pathways that are important. What are those pathways? For one, cultural competence is absolutely necessary. It's, it's absolutely necessary for us to speak in the language of, of those that we are really trying to be in, in, in conversation with. And so that, that, that notion of cultural literacy means who are the practitioners? Have we really opened up this field? And are the barriers of access that have been constructed by the mental health industry really serving the public? And so a part of this is institutional you know, a weight that has to be changed. The YMCA of San Francisco on a typical year serves over 5,000 people within our network of mental health. But we don't just have mental health therapists, we have caseworkers. We meet people where they are and our approach is to remove the barriers of access, fill in the blank. Is it to employment? Because what happens when you are unemployed? There's economic insecurity in the household. What happens when there's food insecurity? When people are hungry and bills are not paid? What happens when you're dealing with the stresses of trying to teach our children in this space right now? So exponentially, the conversation that we're having today has really expanded. And I think that one of the things that I would like to really talk about what we do within not just the why, but within, I think, the practice today is to look at barrier removal. Barrier removal is not just the barrier to the caseworker or the therapist or the psychotherapist or the family counselor, but those social determinants that in this time and space that we have seen in broad, broad highlight of racism, of, of being unhoused, of having not work, having not access which is improving, uh, I'm sorry, increasing the stress levels in which people are living, and therefore the work is really exponentially growing. Well, I, can I just, uh, you know, Chuck said a bunch of things there that just um, kind Great. of, yeah. like, so a, a few things to, like, combine uh, some of what Chuck was talking about there, like the idea of the stigmatization or it being on your record, it becomes a basis for discrimination. Right. So it has I, I have friends who were in law enforcement and other things that they were told if they went to get help for the trauma that they had, that it could potentially be on their record and it would limit their ability to move up because it would be used to say that they were not strong enough to do the work or that they potentially, which I think what we want is for people to actually get more in touch with their feelings, be able to address them and not mm -hmm. carry that trauma forward with them. The other piece around um, the basis for discrimination and, and, and this idea of institutions is that institutions then decide and determine, right, what the health or the, the well-being of a person is and decide what makes them fit for something. And again, what lens are they using to, to make that decision, to make that mm -hmm. call? That is another thing that, again, becomes the basis for discrimination for someone that may not be connected to or understand um, the work that folks are doing. And then this other piece in trying to shift away 
and think about, um, you, you check, you said spiritual wellness. And I just always go back to folks that know me know I'm always talking about um, the idea and notion of religion, but not so much as religion in itself, but the spirituality of it. What it meant for the ancestors, whether it was, you know, the, there's a song that says meeting tonight, meeting tonight, meeting at the old campground. That wasn't about like coming together necessarily to pray as much in my mind and the way that I see it as coming together first as a body, right? Second, to organize and strategize and think about like how you're going to support your community because church was the only place that the slaves could gather together. So the Mm -hmm. spiritual wellness of this means that we have to take the lens of the cultural folks who are doing like prayer and meditation is a form, right? Of spiritual wellness, but so is um, meditation, Right. And so is yoga. And so are all these other things that have been proven to have a physical benefit for the mental practice, but that we don't respect the cultural norms that were passed down from cultural traditions and from history and that they some way have become actually a negative instead of a positive. May I just build on what what Director Davis is saying? Here we are in the Bay Area. Now, for those of you who are living in places not in the Bay Area, we have something called the abundance of nature. Nature is a centering part of living in the San Francisco Bay Area because theoretically we should be able to walk outside and experience that type of wellness, that community that Director Davis was talking about. But now we have to talk about what those barriers are. Are our communities safe? And right now, when I think about all of our family members in Asian communities that are under assault right now because of their ethnic identity and because of who they are. They're not safe to walk outside. There's something really wrong in all of this because a self-regulating person, you know, has all of those, those, those elements to be able to have a whole life. And a part of it, as, as Director Davis was saying, is to, is to be able to come into the common framework, right? Into our common ground, our common humanity. And if we don't have safe communities and equitable access to the very endowment that nature brings us, we don't have a part of that self-regulation that lives within, you know, a, well, a w- well-being. And so, you know, when we take these things apart, and we're really looking at, at look at the building blocks. Safety and trust underlies everything that we're talking about. Safe in physical space, safe in institutional and relational space, and safe in being able to say that I'm hurting right now without the stigma that then goes into the inability to actually find work. So you know, I, I, I wanted to have that, that piece of the conversation as kind of a grounding part um, so that we can begin to explore, you know, where we go with this. You know, you know we're, we're talking about those diagnoses, but let me add another thing. We have to come out of COVID better than we went into it. And there are a couple of things that we've really been working on within the YMCA of San Francisco. We're not the exclusive in this because the human rights agency of San Francisco requires every single department in the city and county of San Francisco to have a racial justice plan. Now, I'm not going to take Director Davis's steam on this, and I really would like to pitch that to her because in this notion of coming out of this by having the important conversations about race and the history of race and the history of the social determinants of wellness, 
you know, this is really kind of lodged in the work that Director Davis has spawned throughout the city and county of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, and that takes me to some of the questions that are actually um, coming from our audience. Um, some of the questions that uh, are here, you know, COVID has exacerbated mental health issues for people of color, right? And and when we're talking about the the in, this endemic also, right, that people have been talking about in terms of, you know, the pandemic and the already existing um, racism and, and, and racial inequities that are there, um, and the disproportionate impact right, of COVID-19 on, on communities of color. Um, you know, how, what are some of the ways that you've seen COVID exacerbate mental health issues for people of color? And, and I wonder also, you know, how do we think about that in terms of um, supporting those, those, those natural sort of community-based ways for people to heal? Because, you know, some of the things I have seen is that, you know, community-based organizations have been hit economically, um, they have suffered a lot of loss and death um, from their their community members. Um, you know they're hurting, right? So, what do we do? What what have you seen, Director Davis? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to monopolize, but I, I mean, I will say, you know, to um, to all of this, right? Like the the one thing that we've heard from folks, right, is when people say, "Let's go back. We will be glad when we get back to normal." Right. Like there is a sense from folks, they don't want to go back to normal because all of a sudden people are like, oh, my gosh, there's disparity. Oh, my. You know, like there's a revelation for a a core group of folks. Right. And that also we've seen through the pandemic that resources have been allocated and the allocation of those resources have been expedited beyond the typical bureaucracy. Right. And so people are like, I want you to move at that pace, a sense of urgency when we come on the other side of this. I don't want you to go back to taking three months to get to and respond to, to my need. Um, I, I also think that there has been a benefit of having those conversations in ways that we haven't before. I think groups have come together, they're acknowledging each other and they're planning together. And so I think there's a benefit in that way. But but for me, you know, um, folks may know Mayor Breed and Supervisor Walton allocated $120 million to support um, the black community to leverage and do some work. And I have to tell you, the, the months of having conversations with folks who said in San Francisco specifically that as a black person, they felt invisible, right? That they, um, or even, and, and when they were seen, that people clutched their bags or pulled their children closer to them, right? Like that plays and takes a toll on folks. And so when, when Chuck talked about safety, right, like I think that there is something within the system and within like the self regulation that he talked about, but also something that plays into the description of who folks are that we have to begin to address. Right. And so there is a sense of frustration. And now with the, the, the more conversation about the tension between um, communities of color and a heightened awareness around what's going on within um, our, our elders, but specifically the Asian population, folks are like, but let's not forget that there is there's there's been this permeating bias that's happened and that's experienced. And so how do we make sure that we address the immediacy of what's happening and playing out and this increase in API hate, but also acknowledge and understand the, the, 
the contributing factors that are at the root cause of some of what we're, we're seeing. And I think that there's a lot to, to play out. And Dr. Who, I, I mean, I think that that's, you know, the piece I struggle with is like, how do we address you know, not get into the oppression Olympics and talk about who's worse off and who's had it, um, who's struggling the most. But how do we actually get to the heart of some of this and start to resolve? And 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 Dr. Hugh, that's actually a question um, uh, in the chat about um, how can we think about violence against the Asian community and address that and and um, work on that. I really appreciate the chance to to talk about it. I think actually the first step is to be able to talk about it and to listen. And that um, if there's any silver linings from the pandemic, it's the ability to learn and to take a moment and, and listen to each other. So during this pandemic, there was so much hateful rhetoric against Asians and that was part of the oppression, but there was also the ability to reach across different groups and across color lines to listen to oppression that had been happening in so many different communities. So um, how to how to begin to to do this? Some of it is is to start and talk and listen and um, realize um, I like whoever just said the oppression Olympics. Um, I, I like because I'm a physician, maybe I like to think about how we're always triaging what's happening. And that instead of saying, well, this person's bleeding to death, but I have cancer, so, you know, we're going to ignore this person or this person. If, if we all sort of said, you know, this person has a terrible infection, this person is bleeding to death, this person has cancer, these are all things that we can focus on and, and they're all worth doing, but it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like, it's not like if we help this group of people, we can't help another people. All of this works together. And so um, I, I appreciate being able to talk about um, anti-Asian violence um, and to be able to talk about anti-Black violence and racism and that this is something that we're all doing together and that it's not one instead of the other. And, and one of the questions I was uh, going to move into is what we can do from our, our various positions of, of leadership and with communities to to address some of these um, these issues that the communities are facing, as well as the disparities. Um, and I, I do want to weave some questions that are coming up um, for you, Nicole, um, where there's some questions about, you know, how can we um, engage, especially young people? Um, in addressing mental health and uh, and some of the experiences that they're having as well, um, and support them in that. What can we do for for young people? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot, right? And it starts with these conversations, but it goes to moving it into action. Um, and I think it goes back, and I've been thinking this whole time, uh, just what you said, Chuck, around safety, right? And when we correlate that to um, mental disabilities and mental health, right, most folks and most families automatically think mental incompetence, right? And they start to think, if I get my youth, if I get my child um, treatment or, you know, put them in different behavioral or psychological classes to learn tools, um, they're going to be separated. 
they're going to be limited and they're going to be segregated, right? And these are the longstanding things that are those uh barriers when it comes to usually community of colors. And I think when working with youth, I get the opportunity to work with them on a daily basis. The largest thing that I heard or I get to hear is they're able to express that they feel certain things, but then it's that dot, dot, dot. But what do I do when I'm feeling this? What do I do not to feel this? And so I get the chance to work with them around racial trauma and decompressing from the different things they have to go through on a daily basis, being a youth of color. And so I think really taking a community-based approach around mental health education, uh, starting with families and parents, educating them on, you know, what are these aspects? Uh, what are some things we can do to find balance, you know, physically? spiritually, emotionally, how do we correlate these things? I, I really think that taking that community-based approach uh, is the first step of really making that one-on-one -on -one connection. And when we talk about equity, uh, I get to do all these equity talks, right? But I think the biggest thing I've got to see now is equity is really meeting someone at the center of their circumstances, right? So we're looking at these communities, we're looking at these families, and we're saying, what do you need to thrive here in America today? right? Not in 15 years, not 15 years ago, but today. And I think that starts with the education and uh, the trust and going back to Chuck and that safety, right? We know the safety is broken. We know families don't feel safe. We know youth don't feel safe talking about these things. And so it's really creating those sacred spaces to have the conversations around uh, mental health. And so I think the community-based approach is the the way we can engage our youth and the way we can, uh, you know, empower them to be youth ambassadors and to feel uh, a sense of pride when uh, talking around mental health and really educating their own community and their own peers on different uh, factors that lead into all of this. You know, I'd like to build on what Nicole just said, and I hope I'm, I'm building on it. You know, there is a poverty of therapists of color. Lived experience often is evidence of how well someone can connect with empathy um, and through technique to a, a really important conversation, right? I, I, I don't want to be racist about that. I, I don't mean it in that way, but I do mean that, you know, when you look at anyone, anybody who's dealing with something called pediatric, you're at the bottom of the economic ladder in that profession. You know, we don't pay pediatricians. We don't pay family therapists. We don't pay family uh, medicine. You know, it's all the specialties. Uh, and so in this, you know, what I would call the, the poverty of therapists of color, we also have to deal with the economics of that. And then now going back to what Director Davis said, you know, in looking at one of the areas that the um, $120 million is going to be addressing is really going to be looking at early education and early childhood development, as well as really increasing the economic resources going into, you know, therapists of color. Now, this is important because, you know, there, there, there is an economic game that has to be really addressed here. I don't mean a game, but if we don't look at, you know, really raising the equitable wages and the equitable life you know, for people who are going so deeply into this really important work, where are we? We, we reward people economically. And I think that there is a, an issue of justice that we have to address when it comes to addressing the notion of the poverty 
of therapists of color. Mm -hmm. And and that and, and that goes in a little bit into where I, Director Davis, I think we'll be able to integrate what you're about to say. Um, I hope is you know there's this, uh, but we'll get there one way or the other. But I you know one of the things is there's some questions coming up, and I you know I was thinking too like yes the, you know so our work with the community and and um, and supporting them in in overcoming and addressing these issues and together right um, across groups. Um, but then I, I am still stuck with this, the issue of, you know, our, our healthcare system or our mental health services, um, you know, need to, to meet that community somewhere, right? Because, you know, we need to keep people healthy and supported in the community. And then there's sometimes that people, you know, could benefit, right, from professional mental health services. And we've had a lot of problems, right? Sort of really um, engaging people, overcoming stigma, uh, providing quality mental health services that are culturally uh, appropriate um, with humility and, you know, thinking about the structural issue, you know, it's, it's just, we've been talking about it for a long time, right. In, in, in the healthcare system of how to, how to improve those things. Um, you know, what, what do each of you think we need to do? Cause I, I agree. It needs to be with the community, but what is the mental health service system going to do to improve what we're doing? I mean, I think there are, are multiple approaches. It's a multi-prong um, step to, to do this. First and foremost, I think it's valuing the um, the healers that we've been, the community healers, the, the folks who are by default the therapist, right? And so we've heard, had these conversations about whether it's, you know, when I go to get my nails done or if it's when I go to get a massage or if it's me getting my hair done, like there's something therapeutic about that and that you're in somebody's chair and you are like just talking away. Right. So what does it look like to equip those folks that already have the trusted relationship to be able to identify trauma, to be able to help people figure out where they can go for additional support and resources? Right. Like, I think that that's one piece we heard a lot from community. There's there's also something about um relationships, right? When we think about um, the woman who maybe doesn't have any children in community, but everybody sees her as the grandmother, that she has a way of consoling and helping people kind of feel better about themselves. How do we leverage that relationship and, and equip her to be able to have some of those conversations? The other piece um, that, you know, we've been working with Nicole and, and you know, Dr. Fortuna with UCSF on is um, what does it look like for us to actually develop the pipeline, right? What does it look like to be intentional to say, we're gonna start in high school and we're gonna to commit to six years of fellowships or internships or that they will do their, they'll finish up high school, then they'll, while they're in undergrad, that they will be able to have an internship or a fellowship with UCSF. And then after they finished undergrad, how do we prioritize them for admission into the, the university? Right, so that they can now move into that field because um, a lot of what Chuck said is, you know, the data shows that, the studies have shown that, right, like that lived experience is important, right, to have the context of that. And we have to value the lived experience. I think there's a whole other challenge with um, the pipeline to that Chuck talked about to the, the equitable, equitable pay. 
But there is something that says, what are we doing to get people through that process? Because not everyone can afford, you know, the, the eight years of going to school and then the, the, they don't want the debt on the other side of it, right? Like, and especially if, if the debt can't be paid off in a reasonable amount of time with your, your, your wage. Mm-hmm. And, and I know, Dr. Hugh, you've done a lot of work in this area of, of thinking about mental health services and, and um, Asian community and other communities. What are, what are your thoughts? There are so many different um, stages at which we can do some. And um, at high school, as, as we mentioned, but also even earlier, um, the, the child who would want to be a healer of some kind and isn't encouraged to do that because they, because no one in the family has had that experience yet, because um, because their school doesn't have um, a guidance counselor who's going to encourage them to get the education. Um, I mean, I have I have so many stories of this sort of thing. Um, Stanford, for example, is located in an affluent community, Palo Alto, but uh, East Palo Alto is not far away, and. Um, one of my trainees had been working on a program just doing teaching um, hip hop and break dancing in the schools, not only for the dance, but also that they would have an experience with a physician, a psychiatrist that wasn't, you know, wasn't something scary. And most of these kids had never visited Stanford, had never gone over just to look at the campus because they didn't feel welcome. Um, you know, one of the, um, I'm one of the associate deans, um, and one of the other associate deans said that when she was interviewing for residency, um, they pointed out she was, you know, waiting for the dinner for the candidates, and someone came out and told her to go around back to where the kitchen staff were supposed to go in, because they, they didn't, and, and I'm assuming that she was dressed in order to do a residency interview, but she was told to go out back of the restaurant. So there's so many stages in this pipeline that um, that society as a whole, um, members of the community can like little bit by little bit do something about. I think in the pipeline, it should include exposure for young people to be able to have their voices heard, have their horizons opened so that's like, you can do this. If this is something that you want to do, you can do this. I think that the people who are making the decisions have to sort of broaden their horizons about, I don't know, there's so many examples, but you know, is um, is horseback riding um, a more prestigious um, activity going into college than, than running? Is, um, is playing the piano, which maybe not every family can afford more prestigious than singing? Is Latin um, more prestigious than um, speaking Spanish fluently. These, these are all, I think, part of the pipeline. And in terms of the importance of the, of the pipeline, you know, remembering that if, if the pipeline is better, it improves things for everyone. You'll have, um, you'll have better care for the communities that that person is coming from, but also for everyone else. Um, if I can, if I can share a story from when I was a medical student, um, I was doing OBGYN, obstetrics and gynecology, and a white male resident who had probably delivered 
thousands of babies, told me with a completely straight face that Chinese women felt less pain. And this was in San Francisco. And I thought, well, that's news to me. And um, the very next Chinese mom, monolingual, non-English speaking, who ended labor went, and he said, Why is, what is this tongue clicking thing that they always do? And I said, that's pain. But like to think of all of the women who did not get adequate pain medication um, because their, their expression was not understood. And also that, and, and this was not like a bad person, right? This was not someone who was like intentionally withholding pain medication, but because there were not a lot of other um, people that he could communicate with about these women's experience, then he was consistently, you know, not recognizing their pain. And then if you think about going on from that, the whole idea with him, with other people that he's talked to of a particular group feeling less pain, that's being a little bit less human, isn't it? And so at some point when one of them is hurt or wounded, then you might not think of them in the same way as someone from your own group. And, and so I think, you know, we're all saying that there's a lot of work to be done, right? In terms of um, overcoming stigma, um, having a pipeline that would add to, to diversity and understanding that would actually improve all of our, all of our opportunities for good mental health services. Um, what, what are, what are some of the sort of particular ways, and we've started to talk about this, right? Um, and, and I'm thinking about this in several ways. There's some questions that the audience is asking about, you know, detailing how each one of, of your programs or institutions or work is uh, supporting this community-based approach. And I would say then this pipeline um, work as well of increasing the pipeline of providers. Um, and I think also um, there's this dance, right, of sort of working with the community and um, sort of cross-culturally talking about these issues, right? Uh, you know, um, our, some of our institutions could come at it in, in sort of standard mental health language, right? I, I think it's, we're, we're moving towards having a broader understanding of mental health and mental health care. Um, but it has to sort of complement and I call it dance with, right? With how the community describes this. Um, not pathologizing people, you know, not pathologizing, but, 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 but getting to a point where we can help the problem, right? So you just threw us a, a softball. Uh, and that softball is that we have some amazing resources here in San Francisco. We, we, we have, you know, a, a back in the day um, when we were going through a huge amount of fiscal crisis, the great Margaret Brodkin, as well as Maria Sue, said that um, mental health in early childhood is very important. And so in the YMCA of San Francisco, when we were faced with really tough choices about how we were going to model our early childhood development under economic stress, Every single site of early childhood development required that we have caseworkers and family therapists available because during the economic stress, everything even exacerbated. So why would you take away the very resources? The mental health department of the city and county of San Francisco with EPSDT and the Department of Children 
um, youth and their families poured extra resources into early childhood development so that we could have these types of resources available for families. When we think about out of school time, and I, so, I know that Nicole is full of all of this type of information, you know, that we require, and I mean that term specifically, that you may be an out of school time worker, but you're actually a caseworker. And you have to have certain trainings. You have to be aware of trauma. You have to be informed about it. And you have to have, you know, routes of being able to understand how to match the services and to meet the young kids where they are so that we remove the barriers to the next step because things can happen with children for good and for bad really right in the moment. And I think that we do have some of the pieces and I would love to hear you know, others on the panel talk about some of the resources that we have in San Francisco that we can build on and that we can really improve our system um, in addition to many other interventions. And work together on, I think too, but um, Director Davis, and I wanna make sure Nicole gets to talk about her, her work too. Yeah, I mean, I was going to pull Nicole in as well, because I know she's done this specifically with young people. But I think that and you, you, you mentioned it toward the end, Chuck, but I, you know, this is where I get in trouble a lot of times because I'm much more critical of things like pouring resources in um, to a bad system does not necessarily help us. Right. And so when we think mm -hmm. about this, you know, I have experience. I, I started my career as a kindergarten teacher and I did some preschool work and there is a you know, I've seen it firsthand that the things that I did as a preschool teacher and as a kindergarten teacher, that um, I saw people define and describe what a black four-year-old boy did very differently in terms of um, behavior and intent and positivity or negativity than they did other four-year-old boys that were not black. And so there is a need, and, and I, that's where I was saying for Nicole, like to really have a discussion and to do some education and some training. But there's also a need to own that we all have a, a level right. of bias, right? And that that bias, right? And I'm not saying that in a, a negative way either. Like our lived experiences color how we see the world. Right. And and some of this, again, in the Sister Citizen book with Melissa Harris Perry, like there was an idea that blacks and whites looked at how what happened with Hurricane Katrina differently. And then even on the national scale, like when we were watching it, the definition of what was happening was very different. And so I think that there's a level of unpacking that we have to do because I get concerned sometimes. I was just talking to somebody today about something different where good money after bad, where we poured resources and we put extra resources and we hired more people who thought the same. And so we didn't, we were like, why didn't things change and get better? Because we didn't really change the system. We actually uh, multiplied the same bad system. So I just want to put that caveat. But Nicole like worked really hard with a group of young people to get them to rethink and engage and process differently. Can you share some of that, Nicole? Yeah, I definitely can. But I think if we go back to Dr. Fortuna's original question, uh, it was around uh, our care system, right? And with practitioners and the challenge that we're having. And I think it comes down to folks of color want to be with folks of color, right? And so we don't want to 
I know like it's kind of like ah, it's like a touchy thing, but I think people want to be felt and hurt, and I want to be able to sit with someone who can understand my story, who can understand my pain, and who I can trust to guide me through the process of healing. Right. So I think I know we're like we're creating all these pipelines, but at the end of the day, it's really trying to pour things into bring in folks of color, young people like me from all different walks of life to have the care and um, that net of folks to take them to school. Right. Like for me, I'm getting ready to go to medical school. So it's like, wait. How do I do that? Right. But I have a really great support system. I have strong people that are here supporting me. Right. So I know, OK, I think I can do this. I think we can get through this. Right. But what about someone else who's not like me? Right. But still has that ambition. So I think when we're creating these pipelines and we're given these resources, I think we have to be extremely intentional. And I think it goes back to um, a lot of people in uh, the city are really great, especially black San Franciscans at saying like, where are these resources at though, right? Like, where is the stuff you all are talking about? Like you come on here, you have your conversations, but like, where is this happening at? And so I think it's really cool because now I can tie it back to me that when I get to work with these youth and we get to do these projects that we're in the community, right? Like I'm at a center, I'm with 15 youth or I'm at three different middle middle schools and we're doing these projects and we're seeing the results. And I also uh, want to bring up that we had created, I worked with some folks at UCF, UCSF and we created this awesome program, right? Like so awesome. And it, it didn't end up getting funded, right? And it was around racial trauma. But after this whole civil unrest during the summer, right? I got a whole bunch of emails. I want to say like August of folks like, hey, 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 we want to pick up that pilot program that you introduced to us around giving you psychological and behavioral tools to deal with racial trauma. And so I think uh, now we have an opening to really work with our youth and give them the tools of uh, how to live a daily life, right? Like how to go to school, even though you just had an eviction notice on your door, right? You might have to take your brother and your sister to school, right? Your grandma just had dialysis yesterday and you still have your school load. So I think when we talk, when we have these conversations, it's meeting those youth at the center of what they're going through and giving them the tools that they need and going to check. We need more folks and more trainers who have those skills, who can have these conversations and who can really cultivate the spirit of these young folks, right? Um, and that this is so critical. And the work that I do every day it is so intentional, but it's also you know, I know I need more training, right? And I know we need more folks like me doing this work. And so um, I think it's how do we actually create these things, right? Like how do we go from pilot programs and me working with two middle schools or two cohorts of young folks to creating this into, you know, some type of standing uh, framework with longevity that our youth have, um, when expressing mental health or if they have mental disabilities or just dealing with racial oppression and racial trauma. And so I think those things are um, really important right now. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, even when I think of, you know, UCSF, right, which is, you know, a higher education and like Stanford, right. You know, so, some of the things that, that I get excited about, which hopefully will make an impact, right. Is when we were able to get together with, um, you know, Nicole and Director Davis on, on thinking about that pipeline work, right? Like how can we partner 
in, in initiatives that we're, we're trying to work on, right? Like Change SF, which is trying to bring young people into getting excited about understanding mental health, uh, being educators around mental health, maybe going into mental health, um, you know, and then working with community partners um, who are working on the front lines, right? With, with communities on economic issues, you know, and, and, and pairing that, right? In, as a sort of an overarching thing about, you know, how can we find healing and deal with all the other things together, right? So that we can see the full picture together. Um, I think I think could be very helpful. And, and yeah, I just like to, you know, add add to that. You know, we we think about things like climate that we must be conscious of energy, and so um, energy awareness in everything we do. One of the ideas I think that that Nicole is really spawning here is that mental health has to be in everything we do. And and one of the things that Director Davis has said is that equity and justice have to be in everything we do. There's not a framework in which we uh, can ignore the importance of, of that body of work. And I think what Nicole is saying essentially is, you know, do we have the guts? Do we have the awareness? Do we have the language, the lived experience, the pipelines, and all of these things to say that mental wellness must be woven into everything that we do. And I can't really think about anything, you know, that doesn't really touch mental health, but we haven't really looked at it. We've looked at mental health as an outlier. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. So what, what opportunities and solutions as we're coming, you know, towards the kind of getting near the end of the hour, what, what, what opportunities and solutions do we all need to get behind? I guess is the way I would put it. You know, if, if we were prioritizing, you know, the things that we need to do to help address these mental health disparities. And someone had mentioned earlier, we need to deal with the things that are happening right now, right? Um, and thinking about the future and building it better. But right now, what, what do we need to get behind? I'm just going to jump in there. You know, as uh, a person who for t virtually two decades was an advocate for young people, as much as I think that mental health needs to be woven in everything we do, the lens of young people must be woven into all things that happen. We have to, we have to really look at our future right now. And as we are in, you know, we're amid right now an educational crisis in this country, the, you know, the growth of the gap in, in equity in education, and really thinking about, you know, Dr. Fortuna and Dr. Hu, you know, what is happening with the, with the growth of children, of babies, you know, in the early part of life, when your cerebral cortex is being developed, when your learning habits and your mindset is being developed. And, and I am worried to death right now that we are not pouring enough resources right this minute, because to me, we're looking at a genocide right before our very eyes. What will it look like in 15 or 20 years? when we have starved our children today because we didn't give them all of these resources. Mental health will become an exacerbated problem, but the underlying issues are ones of economic and family stability, about jobs, about safety, about those very social determinants that we, coming, we keep coming back to. We have to unpack those and really give them a, you know, a, 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 sharp, a sharp point and, and make sure that they're a part of what we do in every way. But for one, 
without kids and without our focus and attention on young people, I don't think we're going to get there. Other thoughts? I absolutely agree with um, with Mr. Collins, and also um, I'm so heartened that Nicole is going into medicine, and I'm going to call you future Dr. Elmore for the rest of this uh, broadcast. Um, one thing that, that hasn't been mentioned so far that I do want to put in there is um, parity of uh, mental health with um, other types of medical help. So, um, you know, that um, I'm sure this is true with you as well, Dr. Fortuna, but the amount of time that we spend on insurance, documenting to insurance, talking to insurance companies, you know, arguing with someone who has um, probably no mental health education, that the person who tried to kill themselves on Tuesday is not entirely better by Thursday, and that they treat something that was a near fatal event in um, mental health to be completely different than how they would be treating any other illness or any other crisis. Um, so insurance has to have some kind of parity. And if there's anything that COVID has taught us, it's that having any group of people be underserved in terms of any sort of health will affect all of us. That we can't be entirely selfish and say, well, if they you know, die a painful death, it doesn't matter. Of course it does. All of these things are you know, sooner or later, all of us are going to need some type of health, help, mental health, physical health, and so forth. These are all, um, they, they can't be ignored. And so I think one of the most important things is to make sure that people have access on all levels, um, not just the stigma, not just the stresses, but also when they need help to be able to get that. Um, you know, I think... I'm so simple in my thinking and approaches. And I just keep coming back to, I said earlier, I was a kindergarten teacher and like, I just keep coming back to the tools and the strategies, right? And I think first and foremost is how do we make sure that people are seen, right? That they, I think that there's something about the, the humanity of people and being acknowledged and being seen and how do we do a better job of that? And, and I, um, I often refer to, folks have heard me say this before, there's a line in Maya Angelou's Life Doesn't Frighten Me at All that says, don't show me frogs, frogs and snakes and listen for my screams. If I'm afraid at all, it's only in my dreams. I can walk the ocean floor and never have to breathe. Life doesn't frighten me at all. And what I take from that is that it's not life that's frightening, it's the dreaming, right? Because we become so normalized in living in our pain and in our sorrow and in our hopelessness and despair that it's become normalized. And the fear comes from dreaming of a different life, of dreaming of something um, different than what we experience because we're not ready to deal with the um, disappointment of not being able to achieve that. So what I'm hearing is like, we need tools and strategies, but I want tools and strategies that create a space for folks to be able to, to dream, to believe that things can get better because, our, you know, I think that Dr. Who said this in the beginning, you know, just being able to, um, to move through and to be able to, to get the support. So this, like, what are the tools that we need in order for insurance to get processed? What are the tools and strategies that we need to not be ashamed of what we're experiencing? 
And what are the tools and strategies that I need so that when somebody tells me what they're feeling, I don't judge it based on my own experience. So I, I just really wrestle with like, how do we, the stigma piece, I just keep coming back to that because I would say culturally, um, it is still something that we're struggling with. And so even if we fix the system, if nobody uses the system, then it, we haven't really fixed the problem. Nicole? God, I have to go after Director Davis. Oh, uh, I just think, uh, just what Director Davis said around the destigmatizing. Um, I also really think that a, a crucial solution in our mental health reconstruction period is community. Uh, just going back to earlier, those folks that are in community that's doing the work already, let's give them the tools and the resources because we know that right now there's a huge distress with care providers and practitioners. And we know we don't have, you know, a, a plentiful amount of practitioners of color within uh, the mental health field. And so until we can get there, let's pour into community. And then after that, right, still pour into community. But I really can see in the everyday work that I do, the trust that folks already have in those pillars that are there. And if we can give them the tools to aid, to, you know, take folks from surviving to thriving, I think that's what we should do at this point and really just work together around, uh, you know, the labeling, the stigmatizing, the separating, all, the limiting, all of those things that are attached to ment uh, mental health, just really, you know, fleshing that down and cultivating a new tone around it and, you know, keeping these conversations going, but actually creating real resources that folks know where they're at, right? And so when they watch these conversations, they just don't click off a of YouTube or whatever and go back and like, oh, well, if I'm feeling like this, you know, I'll keep it to myself, but they know, no, I can go here. No, I can see this person and I can trust this, right? Like I can trust this process and know, you know, I won't get hurt. My family won't get hurt. I won't be further stigma or further, you know, going back to what Chuck said earlier, we don't want folks to, you know, keep being oppressed, right? And we know that mental health can sometimes be like cringing for folks, right? So we just want to take that out. And I think the best way is through that community approach. So, so I agree. I mean, sort of, it, it, we're talking about, you know, working together, right? A across uh, groups, across systems, um, across our health services, and our community working together, right? To sort of redefine is what, what I'm hearing. And so in our last two to three minutes, um, I'm going to ask each of you to just, if you sort of give all of us a charge of what we need to do, right? I mean, we've talked a lot about, about a lot of ideas, but what do we take away from this conversation? A very brief statement. I know it's hard to sort of wrap uh, this rich conversation, but if you just said, you know, this is what we need to do in a, in a sentence, our next step. I can start with you, Nicole. Okay. Well, I think next step for me would be working with my youth right tomorrow. But I, I really think the next steps are creating the pipeline and the pathways for uh, not only education for youth of color, but that whole pipeline to go from education to the schooling, 
to sustainable workforce, right? And especially around mental health, right? So if folks want to go in that field, given the support, also just given that support to community that's there. We know we have, you know, the whole thing with our care system and our practitioners right now. Um, so let's pour into community. Uh, and I think let's make sustainable resources that are there for folks that folks know are here. The biggest thing I hear all the time is like, where, where are these things you're working on? Like, where is this stuff at? Where do I find it? You know, and why do I have to keep going through you? And so I think if we can formulate this hub, that would be the best thing ever, right? And uh, getting folks like me more training, going back to what Chuck said, so we can actually give our youth, you know, more than the tools and the behavior and the psychological things that we've gained in our life, right? But actually having more training and more skills to really take our youth from here to here, I think that that's, uh, that would be huge. And the intentionality around that and building that framework is necessary. Great. Director Davis, you want to go from there? I would just say write it down. Right. Let's give voice to the lived experience. Let's put out there what the resources are. Let's talk about the pipelines. Let's talk about what the needs are. Let's write it down. Let's write the plan. And then let's, you know, move the plan forward. I think we've got it all out there. Let's just let's write it down and let's make it happen. Dr. Hugh. I'd say listen and listen to Director Davis. Listen to future Dr. Elmore. Listen to Mr. Collins. Listen to Dr. Fortuna. This type of conversation has to happen and has to keep happening and realizing that no one thing is the solution, but that a lot of things put together, um, everything that helps, helps. Chuck? Well, I also, I want to, again, end by thanking, um, thanking you for this conversation, and I can't wait to have more with you. You know, there are no silver bullets to systemic and perpetual and longstanding problems. My father was a reader of Aesop, and I remember as a little boy, he told me about this fable. And there was a person sitting at the river, and he was seeing all of these babies in these baskets coming down and going over the waterfall into an undetermined future. And there were many people that were standing there to catch those babies and to keep them from, from perishing. And then somebody else ran up to the top of the river and said, you know, I'm going to work up here because... I want to know what's causing those babies to be falling over the waterfall. And so we have to work at all ends of the spectrum. We have to work both on the ground and really build those pipelines and build those legacy systems that will really address exactly what we're talking about here. But we better go upstream and really look at the social determinants that are causing so much of this to happen because it, it looks at all of the failures of systems but also where we can correct systems around education, around economic you know, security, around the safety of our communities, around you know, health access, and about prosperous futures. So we've got to unpack it at the top because those systems have been around for a long time. But we've also got to look in four years at the graduation of Dr. Nicole Elmore, who's going to be you know, the leader of the future. Thank you. Well, we'll... we'll have to end it there for now. And I agree. I hope we can continue listening, continuing this conversation and continuing moving forth um, in these actions. 
So I, I want to end here with um, giving thanks to our panelists. Um, Cheryl Davis, Executive Director of San Francisco Human Rights Commission. Chuck Collins, President Emeritus of the YMCA San Francisco. Dr. Rana Hugh, MD, Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and Clinical Professors in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. And future, Dr. Nicole Elmore, Community Youth Activist and Program Assistant at Opportunities for All. This program has been part of the Commonwealth Club series on mental health, dedicated in memory of Nancy Friend Pritzker and support from the John Pritzker Family Fund. We thank all our viewers and hope that tonight's program has provided some new ways to look at how we can all better address mental health. I'm Dr. Lisa Fortuna, Vice Chair of Psychiatry, University of California, and Chief at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.